post-1965, the explosion of the uh, 1960s counterculture and the uh, advent of uh, huge widespread interest in Indian philosophy and Buddhism among seekers, all of that led to a demonstrable infusion of ideas and practices of Hindu Dharma into the mainstream of American life. But one of the strange things about it was it was not thought of as Hinduism. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. Hey, welcome back to That's So Hindu. Hopefully you've been able to keep up with the rebroadcast of the Namaste Healthy webinars HAF has done over the past several weeks. If you haven't, I highly recommend you go back and do that. There are episodes on Ayurveda, using yoga and meditation to deal with the stress of the COVID pandemic, and an in-depth discussion with Deepak Chopra. What you're about to hear is an interview I did several weeks ago with Phil Goldberg. Phil is the author of American Veda and The Life of Yogananda, among many other books. In this episode, we talk about the history of Hinduism in the United States and its influence on American culture, the growth of Hindus here, both demographically and socially, as well as Phil's decades-long spiritual practice. So let's start with a big question, big in the sense of broad. For many people in the U.S., their exposure to Hindus and Hinduism is limited. And for many people that know Hindus, it may seem like a recent thing that Hindus are part of the United States. Yet Hindu ideas have been influential here for a long time, as you've written about. For those that don't know, can you give a brief overview of how Hinduism has really been in America for a while and how it's influenced the United States? The, the issue you raise in that context has a lot to do with the, the word Hindu or Hinduism um, because it has the connotation of a religious identity and an association with India, and that has validity. So it's, it's, it's understandable that people would think, oh, now we have people of Indian descent who are citizens of the United States. They're now two, three generations in after the 1965 change in immigration laws. Those are the Hindu Americans. Can, you, can I just interject there? Many listeners may not know about what happened in 1965. Remind, remind listeners what happened then? Oh, I, I don't remember the name of the bill, but it was one of, you know, 1965 was a very busy year politically, but when that change in immigration law was put into effect, it essentially allowed people from parts of Asia, especially India, to become citizens, to, to uh, come to America and emigrate and, and, and become American citizens. That was not uh, the legal situation for many decades prior to that. And so that uh, necessitated or led to um, a, a major shift in the demographics of uh, ethnicities and religious uh, diversity in America. And we see it today. We, we were not quite as diverse prior to 1965. And now, you know, there are plenty of uh, people born into Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism that could not be uh, citizens before. 
Um, I just wrote this, you know, a biography of Yogananda. He lived here. He was a prominent Indian from 1920 uh, till 1952, and he passed, but he couldn't become a citizen until 1949 because there was a, a, sim, a, a prior change in the laws. But then people could, in 65, people could immigrate. Prior to that, to get back to your uh, original question, but the ideas that we associate with Hinduism have been coming into America since the early part of the 19th century. So in uh, American Veda, I, I chronicle that history beginning with the uh, early translations of Hindu texts that were coming in, especially uh, to the port in Boston, and finding their way into the hands of progressive thinkers uh, like Ralph Waldo Emerson's family and later uh, Henry David Thoreau and all the transcendentalists. And that had an enormous impact on those people and through them on a large uh, portion of educated, uh, curious, open-minded Americans. It led directly to what we call the New Thought Movement. And then in 1893, uh, beginning with Swami Vivekananda, uh, we had a series, slowly at first, of spiritual teachers, gurus, swamis, coming to visit from America. They could not become citizens. Some stayed a while, some left. And then uh, Yogananda, as I mentioned, in 1920. And then post-1965, the combination of the change in immigration law and the explosion of the uh, 1960s counterculture and the uh, advent of uh, huge widespread interest in Indian philosophy and Buddhism among seekers, all of that led to a demonstrable infusion of ideas and practices of Hindu Dharma into the mainstream of American life. But one of the strange things about it was it was not thought of as Hinduism. And there, there are many, many reasons for that. But one of the reasons was the teachers who came, Vivekananda, Yogananda, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Swami Muktananda, Sachin, all of these teachers were emphasizing that they were not preaching religion, and they were not asking anybody to convert to their religion, which was Hinduism, that they were teaching universal principles and methodologies, spiritual methodologies that we associate, that they named Vedanta and yoga. So they were not thought of as preaching Hinduism and the people who adopted those ideas and practices did not think of themselves as necessarily Hindu. Many did, but most people didn't take on that label. They thought of themselves as spiritual people uh, adopting a Vedantic philosophy and, and methods of yoga, but did not think of themselves as Hindu because in if they did, they would not also be Christian or Jewish. 
and so uh, and and so many people wore both those their their identity of birth and acted more like Hindus in their spirituality than uh, many people born into Hinduism did, but they did not uh, necessarily adopt. The la- that language. And so that's the messy situation you, you pointed out in your question. So it is a, it is a, bit, a bit of a messy situation. Um, and I'm glad you, you anticipated one of my questions about some of these early teachers not using the name Hindu, trying to universalize their message. To just pivot a little bit, it seemed, it's always seemed to me that there's a slight different situation with Buddhism. Yes, people, people more readily identify as Buddhists who weren't necessarily born into it. But when it comes to Hinduism, people hem and haw about it a little bit, yes. and they'll say they're inspired by it or something. Or they'll the, use the term Vedanta or yoga instead. Yeah, exactly. It, why do you think that is? I, I don't oh, know. Man. A specific. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I, I don't. It's I don't think complex. there's a. Yeah, it's a complex thing. But, it is, and but, no but let's but let's let's get get complex on it because okay all right what, what uh, do you think about that? Well, you know, when I was writing American Veda, this became obvious to me, and, and I said, "Oh my, you know, this is this is odd. We have all these pe- people teaching in the name of Buddhism, Americans, and prior to that, we had people uh, saying, "I'm a Buddhist," who. Um, in the you know as far back as the 1950s when the Zen teachers were here from Japan and the Beat Generation took it on, it, Buddhism simply does not have the same connotation of Hindu as Hinduism in that regard. And so I I, I inquired with um, scholars, including Indian scholars, Hindu scholars, why they think that is, and. The reasons that seem most plausible to me are that, well, for one thing, Hinduism is associated with one country, with India. So all the cultural, historic um, images of India, the stereotypes of Indian life, the misconceptions about India and its religious traditions, all of that is laid onto the term Hindu and Hinduism. Buddhism, on the other hand, came from Japan, it came from Tibet, it came from uh, Burma, it came from Thailand, and so it didn't have one single cultural association. To the extent that most of what people knew about Buddhism came from Japan uh, back in the 50s and 60s. It was Zen, and the image of Zen was that it was pretty much a secular thing. You didn't have, it was about meditation and a certain attitude and uh, approach to life. And it didn't have what people would think of as religious connotations, meaning the, the the Japanese Buddhism is so austere and uh, lacking in colorful imagery and ritual that people uh, could identify with it and not feel they were adopting a religion. That's different when it comes to Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, 
But for some reason, the, Buddhism is thought of as something that could be easily secularized. And if you, if you don't uh, share all of the belief systems of, of a particular strain of Buddhism, and you don't share the cultural uh, overlay of rituals and customs that are associated with different um, cultures, um, you could still think of yourself as Buddhist. It should be that way with Hinduism because, you know, all the you know, vast majority of people adopting the methodologies and principles of, of what we think of as Hinduism are also adapting them to their own way of life. They adapt their yoga and, and Vedanta to, uh, and still go to church or still go to synagogue or think of themselves as Jews and Christians. Same with Buddhism. Or they're secular and they're not, they don't think of themselves as religion. Religious, they think of themselves in that category of spiritual but not religious or the unaffiliated. So, so, so you get people who are totally dedicated to a particular guru or a particular uh, uh, parampara, a, a lineage of, of teachers, you know, run by Hindu monks and swamis, but they don't think of themselves as Hindu. They think of themselves as yogis. You get people, you know, who are lifelong students of uh, the Ramakrishna Vivekananda lineage or of, uh, you know, t practicing TM for 50 years and studying, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's take on all of this, but they don't think of themselves as Hindu. Whereas, you know, a lot of people born Hindu and think of themselves as Hindu don't come anywhere near as close <laughs> in terms of the time and, and um, sincerity that, with which they, they engage these spiritual practices. So it's, it's a strange thing. And I think much of it has to do with the images of India uh, and Indian religion as, you know, ha having all these deities and gods and... Uh, of course, it's associated erroneously with with the rigidity of the caste system and um, other cultural things like all the, the the strange imagery and colorful rituals. So people who don't engage with those things but follow the principles of Vedanta philosophy or Kashmir Shaivism or Vaishnavites. And, and, and meditate and do kirtan and practice hatha yoga and all that. They, they're dedicated, but they don't think of it as their religion. You see, Vivekananda didn't start uh, the Hindu society or the Hinduism society. He called it the Vedanta society because it had philosophical overtones and not religious overtones. He didn't want think people to think they had to convert or give up their, their religion. Similarly, Yogananda started the Self-Realization Fellowship, not the Hindu Fellowship, for similar reasons. They were offering these ideas and practices to everybody, who, regardless of their religion or lack of religion. And so using religious terminology would perhaps have been a detriment. I mean, I, I get that. And then, and that's my intuition on it. But to go back to what you were just saying about when uh, Vivekananda came and Yogananda, they named their respective 
organizations, they, they didn't include the word Hindu in them. And, and I understand that both intellectually, academically, and, uh, and strategically in the time period. But we're decades, decades on from then. Do you think today in 2020 that using the name Hindu is important for these lineages or does that not matter? And it's really the teachings because whether you call it Hindu or Vedanta, the same insights that one gains from this path are the same. Yeah, I know. And I, I don't want to be in a position of, of saying what uh, people representing. No, these no, no, of course I'm not, I'm not asking to, for you to, <laughs> to, you know, put it down on from on high saying the, you know, Ramakrishna's <laughs> need to be calling themselves yeah. Hindu. I'm just saying like yeah. in a more general sense, Hindu is a brand. Well, I, I, I will say this. Um, even in the last, what is it, eight or nine years since American Veda came out, I can see a change where uh, people are not, you know, who are lifelong practitioners or uh, dedicated to their yoga or their Vedanta philosophy, people who go to India on pilgrimages like, you know, the group I just took to, to South India for a tour, uh, people who go to ashrams and, and all this people who become yoga teachers, people who train in various lineages to teach others, um, they are more willing these days to, if not call themselves Hindu, to at least use the word Hindu in Hinduism and explain that yoga, Vedanta, all this is, you know, part of what um, would be called uh, uh, the... Uh, Hindu tradition and aspects of uh, Indian systems known as, you know, that we think of as Hinduism. But it, it is so diverse and so complicated, even in India, that you, you, you do have to explain that. Um, and maybe in time, with the work of your Hindu American Foundation, and the presence in American life of people who are Hindu, who call themselves Hindu, most the vast majority of whom are uh, descendant from India, with the uh, current um, situation where there are Hindu temples that resemble the temples in India, in, uh, dotting the landscape, uh, certainly in all the major cities of America. Um, with Hindu kids going to school, growing up, marrying, intermarrying with other ethnicities and other religions, all this will, will, is changing and it will change. I mean, I just, before our call, was watching the news on TV and there was uh, Representative Krishnamurti from Illinois. You know, those are names you didn't see on the news uh, 20 years ago. And so the integration of uh, Hindus into American life as another uh, aspect of, of, of diversity will change all this. Uh, and I would suspect that using the term Hindu, uh, people will come to understand what it you know, means in a larger sense. Um, and, and the work you guys are doing you know, to change textbooks uh, fight against uh, stereotyping and discrimination of Hindus. 
um, all this will have its effect and and perhaps then you know the connotations that uh, make people uh, reluctant uh, to use the term uh, or to misunderstand the term will fade away. I'll, I'll, I'll add this. What I see in, in circles, you know, of uh, dedicated practitioners of uh, Hindu Dharma, the people doing kirtan in the yoga studios and at Bhakti Fest, the people for whom the essence of their spiritual practice is a, is a meditation technique derived from one of the uh, Hindu traditions. They don't use the word Hindu because they're Hindu phobic. They use it because they don't want to use a religious term. We think of Hindu and Hinduism as a, a designation of a religion. And they'd rather think of themselves as spiritual without the religious labels. That is, you know, an obstacle to be educating people about what the essence of Hinduism is. But um, it's a reality. And, and there are probably also many, many people who don't call themselves Buddhists for the same reason, but practice a form of mindfulness that's derived from Buddhism. And they think of it as, you know, a method of self-improvement or their spiritual practice, but they don't call themselves Buddhists. So you touched on it a little bit in the sense of Hindus, Hindu Americans becoming more prominent um, with Representative Krishnamurti. Beyond just the fact that Hindus are more present, that we see them, we see largely brown faces. I mean, there are non-Indian Hindus, non-brown Hindus. But we see the Indian American community, the Hindu American communities growing. Have you seen, if you can describe it, a change in the perception of Hinduism and Hindus in the United States? I've seen it, but more importantly, so have people of Indian descent, uh, according to what they tell me. I think their children are less likely to be harassed for being uh, uh, worshiping, you know, false gods or whatever, you know, people would say to them uh, now than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's still a big issue. It's still a big problem. But um, I think that's just what happens. It's the history of America. Look, look how people treated Jews and Catholics a hundred years ago, um, or even you know sixty or seventy years ago. I don't face the same uh, discrimination or uh, bullying or any uh, any of the harassment uh, because my last name is Goldberg that my father and grandfather did. Um, thing, things change, and uh, it, it's it's working that way with uh, Hindu Americans as well. It's it doesn't feel fast enough, I'm sure, if you're dealing with it on a daily basis. But I think it, it's, it's clearly uh, changing in the same way all the uh, uh, stereotyping and um, um, harassment of other ethnic groups did. In that stereotyping, in that misperception of Hindus, that, that is changing. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, we, we still see examples of of politicians or public figures or beliefs being grossly misrepresented. 
if there was one thing, if you had to pick out in Hinduism as a spiritual tradition, not uh, let's leave aside Indianism, Indian origins or anything like that as a spiritual tradition, if you had to pick one thing in Hinduism, what do you think gets misrepresented most or to phrase it in a positive way? What do you think is the most important thing that non-Hindus should understand about Hinduism? Well, I, if you'll let me say two things. Of course. One is that the association with caste discrimination and um, those uh, cultural factors that get uh, presented as Hindu should more accurately be called aspects of historic Indian culture and not necessarily uh, uh, central to or derived from the you know core principles of Hinduism. It, it, that is is one thing. Um, just as you would not say uh, uh, na- uh, Christian uh, Christianity necessarily gives rise to racism and slavery and colonialism and all the 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 horrors of the western civilization that was done by christians you wouldn't you would we don't call those things christian and similarly i think that should be the case with with things like the caste system and other you know uh aspects of indian culture especially old um, antiquated aspects like the caste system, but more accurate uh, or a different take on your question: thinking of Hinduism as <laughs> what Westerners might call idol worship or polytheism, because of the imagery of all the gods and goddesses that people have. So they think of it as some kind of pagan uh, system of um, idol worshiping and and all the various gods, not understanding that the deities uh, are understood by people, or even ordinary people in India, just everyday uh, practitioners or you know Indian Hindus, as uh, the representing the, the vast, infinite variety of expressions of a single spirit or a single essence of the universe that that in uh, Hinduism would be called Brahman, and that we are also that the sort of essence of Vedantic uh, insight and that the, the, the various forms are uh, represent different tendencies in creation, different expressions of the, the one uh, infinite eternal truth and reality. Um, and people um, have this concept of Isha Devata where, you know, people are, except a particular form that appeals to them and that becomes the object of their devotional practices or their uh, ritual ceremonies, but they understand it in the context of oneness, of uh, the infinite uh, expression that encompasses and transcends all the variety. I think that 
to me, is, is a central issue that uh, people need to understand. In other words, the tendency to say, oh, we in the West are monotheists and they're polytheists. It's just, you know, an erroneous uh, understanding of what uh, Hinduism is. What's your personal spiritual practice look like and how, how has this evolved over the years? Well, I'll, I'll give you the whole history. I started to become aware of uh, the teachings of uh, the Hindu and Buddhist traditions uh, back in the 60s when I was a student. I was just one of millions of seekers of my generation. And um, I was, I was, unlike many of my, co- my cohorts then, I was raised by atheists who thought religion was the uh, opium of the people. And so I was that way myself. But on the other hand, I was searching for truth. And when the teachings of the East, the, the teachings that uh, were born in India, um, <clears throat> came my way via books, I just was drawn to them. They just resonated as true and uh, rational and empirical and uh, uh, filled with potential for personal transformation and uh, fulfillment. And so I, I dove into the study of them, tried different methods. And then after the, the famous uh, sojourn of the, of the Beatles, famous sojourn in India, with uh, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi in in, uh, uh, 67 and 8, I took up that practice. I learned uh, Transcendental Meditation in 1968, and it it was indeed transformative, and I dove into uh, the, the practice and the teachings that it derives from, which is, you know, the Shankara tradition and um, became a teacher of that. And that was my uh, focus and, and the focus of my practice and my uh, work actually for several years in the 70s. And since then, um, I remain, uh, the, the, te- the practices I acquired in those years remain the centerpiece of my, my sadhana. Uh, but I have, of course, uh, branched out and, and uh, learned from many, many different teachers, living and dead, and wrote about them and did a biography of one of them and traveled in India a number of times and visited ashrams. So over the years, I've acquired other practices that go along with the central meditation technique that I've been doing for half a century now, some of which are uh, from the Hatha Yoga a tradition, some of which are more bhakti oriented, like uh, chanting and, and kirtan, or what we in the West might call prayer. And so, uh, you know, I have a, an inventory that I use, um, but I still use the uh, mantra based meditation practice that I learned way back in when I was, when I had hair. That's the, the centerpiece of it. You brought up. TM, you've mentioned TM, Transcendental Meditation, for those that don't know the acronym. One of the most um, visible proponents of that in terms of foundations and spreading it is uh, an iconic film director, David Lynch. Yes. 
Is David Lynch Hindu? I don't know what he would say, but, you know, he's one of millions of people who, for whom a, a particular teacher, a particular lineage, and a, especially a particular uh, practice, a sadhana, is a centerpiece of their spiritual life, maybe the entirety of their spiritual life. But whether they would call that themselves Hindus is a whole other story. I'm guessing that David Lynch would say, no, this, I don't see it as a religious um, affiliation. I see it as you know, my way of achieving uh, you know, practical, uh, transformational uh, experiences and being a better person and being a more fulfilled person and perhaps a, a self-realized person, but I don't see it in religious terms and Hindu is a religious term. So I don't you I don't necessarily identify. I mean, I, I feel like we're coming full circle on it. Yes, and it's a very, I mean, which is somehow a very Hindu thing to do. We're coming coming yes. back to. Does that matter? <laughs> does, does does it matter? David Lynch, and I mean there are others in there too. I think I've seen articles with Hugh Jackman saying he derived. I don't know if he yeah. does TM, but he derives does. inspiration from the Upanishads and stuff and stuff like yeah. that. Ultimately, does does that matter? I don't know. I don't think it matters to them, and I don't think it, it doesn't matter to me. But, and here's the other thing, it would not matter to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or Yogananda and his millions of people who are totally dedicated to him and his teachings, but they don't think of themselves as Hindu. And it's partly because he said, no, you can still be Christian, just use these methods. And here's a way of interpreting your religious heritage in a different way through the eyes of the Vedantic philosophy or so forth. Same with all the teachers who came here. You would not see a people uh, devoted to Swami Satchidananda or Swami Muktananda calling themselves necessarily Hindus, even if they're teaching and, you know, living a lifestyle, you know, that's totally immersed in, in that lineage. It's a strange phenomenon, but it's true. And I think it has to do with a feeling of not wanting to identify with a religious term. And why that's not quite the case uh, to the same degree with Buddhism is a mystery. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And he would answer this question, no, you, you know, if you practice these, my methods, if you become a teacher of my methods, as you, you're, you're not necessarily becoming a Hindu. You, the, these are scientific methods. This is a science of consciousness, a science of self-realization. Yogananda's first talk when he came to America was called the science of religion. They were integrating Hindu Dharma with a, a culture that values science and secularism and reason and so forth. So they did not want to uh, make it look like they were uh, representing a religion that people might uh, be reluctant to explore. But methods of self-improvement, methods of raising consciousness, methods of realization, that's, that's a different kind of connotation. What's next for you? What are you working on right now? Well, uh, starting with American Veda, I, I, I found myself um, 
blessed and privileged to be uh, writing about this, what I think is one of the most important phenomena of you know, the last 100 years or 200 years, which is the integration of these teachings that uh, arose in antiquity in India uh, in, in the, uh, through the insights and inspirations of the great rishis. The way they become integrated into American life, uh, whether they're called yoga or Hinduism or Vedanta, um, is a, a terribly important phenomenon. It has transformed the spiritual and religious landscape of American life. And it's just increasing. You see it all the time. So I've been uh, writing about that and you know, finding different ways to, talk, to, to um, bring it to light. And the most recent uh, was sort of um, uh, uh, combined um, inspiration from me and uh, my, my last publisher, Hay House, uh, to do a practical book instead of, you know, something that takes three or four years to research and write. Um, that to answer the call of the crazy times we live in and the, the, the anxiety and uh, confusion people feel about what's going on in the world, my goal was to apply spiritual principles and methods primarily drawn from the yoga or the Hindu tradition, the, the, the Upanishadic traditions, into, to apply them to practical life. So I have a book coming out in August called Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. And uh, so I'm at the moment finished I'm proofreading the book, actually, as soon as we get off the phone. <laughs> and, and it'll be out in August, and I'll be running around trying to uh, apply certain of these teachings uh, to everyday life in a slightly different way. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.